The business meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, Mr. Secretary, we're going to do a little business uh, during the time that you're here, so we're just going to open up. We'll have a rolling vote at some point during your, your hearing process. Um, but we want to go ahead and move forward some other nominees. So uh, today we'll consider three nominations and multiple Foreign Service officer lifts. I want to thank my colleagues for helping the committee work through these nominations, promotions, in, our, in, in an appropriate fashion to allow us to take these steps forward today. Senator Cardin, are there any comments you would like to make? No, Mr. Chairman, um, uh, for, for Mr. Sullivan, we're trying to get some confirmed ambassadors to make your job a little bit easier. So uh, I hope you'll appreciate the fact that Chairman Corker and our committee are moving nominations as quickly as possible. And one of the things we'll ask you to do, if you're confirmed, is to get us nominations a little bit sooner. But in any respect, we're very supportive of the three nominees that we have here today and the the list I think we're going to take up, and I strongly urge our colleagues in regards to Governor Branstad, which is a really critical appointment in China. Um, I, I thought he conducted uh, the, the hearings and cooperated with the committee and fully qualified, and I strongly support his nomination. Yeah, I don't think anybody uh, misunderstood why he'd been governor for 23 years. Um, certainly, I was able to answer questions in a in a way that related to people, and we look forward to his service. I'm going to go ahead and read the names of these nominees and the Foreign Service list, and at the appropriate time, we'll have a vote. The Honorable Terry Branstead to be Ambassador to China. The Honorable Tulinabo Mushinga to be Ambassador to Senegal and currently to Guinea-Bissau. Mr. Todd Haskell to be Ambassador to the Republic of Congo and the five Foreign Service officer list as modified. Uh, that will be what we will vote on at the appropriate time. And with that, um, we'll leave the business meeting open and move to your hearing. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I have no objection if you want to start the roll call so we can keep it as a rolling roll call, if, that's, if, that, if you would like to do you that. We have no objection to that. Uh, uh, we have a few members here all in favor of these uh, this in block, uh, be signified, please signify by saying aye. Uh, aye. Opposed? Thank you. Well, we will count those five and move on. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for appearing before the committee today, Mr. Sullivan, and your willingness to serve our country once again. The confirmation of a Deputy Secretary of State is one of the most imp important appointments this committee will, will consider. The person who occupies this position will serve as the Chief Advisor to Secretary Tillerson, as Secretary as secretary in his absence, and as a principal officer for management of personnel and resources at the State Department. Given recent management, budgetary, and information technology challenges, this is no small task. Fortunately, the President has nominated someone who has extensive background in federal service, having served as at the Department of Justice, Department of Defense, and as Deputy Secretary of Commerce. I believe Mr. Sullivan has the knowledge base necessary to understand the inner workings of a large federal bureaucracy and the capacity to manage multiple priorities at the deputy level. Mr. Sullivan also has developed a reputation in the legal field as an authority on trade and national security issues. If confirmed, Mr. Sullivan will be re-entering government service at a highly precarious time in world history. From Europe to the Middle East to East Asia, we are witnessing a number of major threats to global security and stability. These events give rise to a common question, what will America's role be? 
We are at a crucial point where we can decide to leave from the front with bold action or simply observe what happens from the sidelines and hope for the best. It is my hope that we will choose to appropriately gauge, engage on the hard problems, that we will restore U.S. credibility, and that we will provide strong, pragmatic leadership on the world stage. It is also mandatory that the person who fills this position understand not only the importance of this office to the day-to-day -day operations of the department, but also the responsibility of keeping this committee fully informed of the department's operations, plans, and policy objectives as we exercise our oversight authority. I have spoken with Mr. Sullivan in private about the need for us to have candid responses to our questions both today and in the future if he is confirmed by the Senate. We are here today to examine Mr. Sullivan's nomination, and I look forward to hearing from him about his exceptionally important position. Typically, we would allow a visiting senators to uh, go ahead and speak, uh, but do you want to go ahead since we've begun? No, I, I'm, I'm more than willing to yield. If it's all right with you, I, if Senator Sullivan, I, it's, it, it's a little confusing there with Sullivan's, but uh, if... Uh, They're not related, I understand. But I, I'm willing to yield to Senator Sullivan. Okay. So uh, we're, we're honored to have Senator Sullivan, who has served, I think, in the past uh, with Mr. Secretary Sullivan. And uh, thank you for being here and spending a few moments. Go ahead as a courtesy. Uh, we'll let you start right now. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee. It's an honor for me to come before the Foreign Relations Committee uh, on behalf of my friend, former colleague, great American, uh, Mr. John Sullivan. And despite what his last name would suggest, uh, we aren't related, although, as I mentioned to Senator Markey, probably somewhere back in the history of Ireland, maybe we're all related. Yeah. Uh, that's why. That's why he's the biggest supporter of the... Yeah. Um, I met John when we first served in the administration of uh, George W. Bush, myself as an assistant secretary of state working on economic energy trade, finance issues, and John is the Deputy Secretary of Commerce, and we worked on a number of foreign policy issues, particularly in the economic realm, together. You've all had an opportunity to see his resume, but I just wanted to highlight a few elements of his personal background and experience. John started out in public service as a law clerk for Judge John Wisdom on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then later as a law clerk for Justice Souter on the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2004, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld appointed John as Deputy General Counsel of the Department of Defense. He then moved to the Department of Commerce, where he served as General Counsel and then as Deputy Secretary. In the private sector, John currently co-chairs Mayor Brown's national security practice and serves as Chairman of the United States-Iraq Business Dialogue. I mention these positions because I think we can all agree that American foreign policy is not just formed in the halls of Foggy Bottom, but in the departments of defense, energy, commerce, treasury, justice, and many other agencies throughout Washington. It is in this vein that I believe John's substantial and diverse experience in the federal government will serve an important complement to Secretary Tillerson's background in the private sector. John's experience also speaks to a greater understanding of what it takes to develop and execute U.S. foreign policy. He understands the importance of a robust interagency, cooperation, and coordination element of our government. 
He understands that our nation's foreign policy is most effective when we combine all instruments of American power, diplomatic, military, energy, trade, private sector. He understands the critical importance of working with our allies around the world, and he understands what it means to honorably serve our nation and has a career of doing so. And with a name like Sullivan, I'm confident John will also bring an Irishman's wit, charm, gift of gab, and pugnaciousness to the job, all important qualities of a diplomat. He is a man of integrity. I know he will serve Secretary Tillerson, the men and women of the Foreign Service and Civil Service, and this nation well, and I urge you to support his nomination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for coming and uh, supporting someone you, you are glad to be here to support, and you can return to your other duties. Thank you so Thank much, you. sir. All right. So uh, with that, I'd like to go ahead and have a voice unblocked for the, the Foreign Service Officer list and the ambassadors that were previously laid out. And Senator Coons has already signified an eye as he stepped out, but all in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed? Thank you so much. Senator Cardin. Uh, Mr. Mr. Chairman, first of all, let me thank Mr. Sullivan for his willingness to serve our country again. He seems to always want to come back to public service, and we very much appreciate that. Very talented person uh, who has a distinguished record, and we thank your family for willing to share uh, you with our nation, because uh, in the position that you've been nominated for, uh, it will take 110 uh, percent of your time and effort. Um, the challenges are great, and as uh, Chairman Corker pointed out, uh, it, so much goes through the Deputy Secretary. It is uh, the person who really makes sure that the personnel systems are working, that the different, uh, different regional areas are, are held accountable. Uh, it, it is a, a critically important position. I'm going to use my time in my opening statement to share some of the comments that we had talked about in our private meeting because I think it's important at this nomination hearing to review a couple areas of concern that ha we have on the Trump administration and get your views as a, uh, if confirmed, a critical person in developing the foreign policy of our country. The first is what I led our private discussion, is to talk about American values, American strength. I just came from an ADL uh, meeting where we were talking about what makes America the strong nation that it is. Yes, we have a strong military, and you helped develop our strong military. That's important. We have a strong economy. And Senator Sullivan was involved in helping to develop that strong economy. But America's strength is in our ideals, our values, speaking up for democracy, speaking up for human rights, anti-corruption, and embracing diversity. So I want to start with that because I want to have a dialogue, I hope, today during this nomination hearing as to how you value uh, the importance of what America stands for. It's in context to Secretary Tillerson's statement last week uh, that gives me grave concern, where he said that our foreign policy is out of balance, that our policies and values aren't the same, and that if we condition our national security efforts on someone adopting our values, we probably can't achieve our national security goals or our national security interests. That didn't just concern a Democratic senator from Maryland, uh, but Senator McCain, who is um, well-respected globally for his commitment uh, to American values, said, uh, indeed, uh, let, me, let me quote from Senator McCain's op-ed this week, uh, 
In the real world, as lived and experienced by real people, the demand for human rights and dignity, the longing for liberty and justice and opportunity, the hatred of oppression and corruption and cruelty is reality. By denying this experience, we deny the aspirations of billions of people and invite their enduring resentment. And Mr. McCain, Senator McCain went on to state, our values are our strength and our greatest treasure. We are distinguished from other countries because we're not made from a land or tribe or particular race or creed, but from an ideal that liberty is the inalienable right of mankind and in accord with nature and nature's creator. To view foreign policy as simply transactional is more dangerous than its proponents realize. Depriving the oppressed of a beacon of hope could lose us the world we have built and thrived in. It could cost us our reputation and history as the nation distinct from all others in our achievements, our identity, and our enduring influence on mankind. Our values are central to all three. So I'm, I hope that we will have a chance to talk about this. This is not a hypothetical discussion. The Russian Federation has made a strategic decision to try to undermine our values as an effort to spread their influence in countries that currently have democratic values. So this is a, 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 a current issue that is of grave concern. The second point I, I want to mention is our respect for involvement internationally. And uh, I say that in context to the fact that I led a 10-senator delegation to COP21 to bolster U.S. leadership and provide calm and confidence in the United States' commitment to the global efforts to fight the existential threat of climate change. Now, we may disagree as to what the solution should be. I happen to side where science tells me the solution is, but we may have some different views on it. But I would hope we would all agree that the United States must be at the table during these discussions and that we need to remain part of the international family as we talk about these issues. Because without the U.S. leadership, there'll be other countries that'll try to fill it. But we'll be on the side of, of, of very few countries. I think Nicaragua and Syria are the only other two countries that didn't join COP21. And that's not certainly the, the neighbors that we want to associate ourselves with. So I hope we'll hear your view as the importance for America's engagement globally and that it would be wrong for us to sit on the sidelines as the international community discuss major issues. In that vein, we will talk to you about the president's skinny budget of a 36% cut in the, in the um, State Department. We understand that Congress will draft its own budget, and I fully respect that, and I know the commitment of many members of this committee on both sides of the aisle to make sure that we have adequate resources to deal with our international commitments. But we want to hear your view as to America's engagement. Over and over again, I'm involved in Afghanistan and Iraq where they're talking about more of the soft power so that we can avoid the military engagements in these countries. We know that in Africa, we need to do more on, on spreading democracy in that country. We know about the famines and the challenges that we have to deal with there. So I'd be interested in hearing your view as to how resources can be more efficiently spent and allocated but America's role will be one of increased influence, not reduced influence, in using what's under the State Department to provide stable neighbors for us to work with. And the last point I would, would, is just what the, uh, what the chairman has said. In our private discussions, you made it clear that you would respond to requests by members of this committee. And I would ask that, that that also be reaffirmed at today's hearing. Welcome. We look forward to your hearing, and we look forward uh, to uh, the continued partnership between this committee uh, and the State Department.
And before we move on to your opening statement, which we look forward to, would Senator Coons, Menendez, and Young want to register a vote on the uh, nominations and foreign service officer list as monotated? Uh, uh, Mr. Chair, I have a procedural uh, question. Sure. So is the business meeting over or is it no, rolling? No, it's going to be over as soon as you vote. It's rolling. And it's going, it's rolling, I it's say. It's rolling, that's correct. And th this, and this hearing started already. That's this correct. hearing is supposed to start at 1015. Yeah. Is there a way to give members notice of that for the future? Because I would have been here. Yeah, I think this is probably the first time it's happened. In <laughs> I know. I'm just saying years. so yeah. it happened. Well, can, can I just make a suggestion that if a member got here by 10:15 on the early bird rule, I would think that would be acceptable for the gavel in the hearing. That's perfectly fine. Uh, I, I'm, yeah, I'd like to be voted as a yes on the yeah, nomination. Just one sentence. Uh, one of the folks uh, who's being promoted through these foreign service lists is Andy Herskovitz who has very ably run Power Africa. He's the coordinator being um, advanced to minister counselor. I just wanted to commend him and everybody else on these foreign service lists for their service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Very good, sir. Senator Young. Uh, aye. Please record me as yes. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. With that, the ayes have it. The nominations, appointments, and promotions are agreed to. That completes the committee's business. I ask unanimous consent that staff be authorized to make technical and conforming changes without objection. So ordered with that and without objection, the committee business meeting will stand adjourned. We look forward to your opening comments. We hope you will uh, welcome and uh, introduce your wonderful family who's with you today. We found that uh, generally tones down committee members when you do that. And uh, I, I do hope you will affirm the fact that if we have any questions that you will promptly uh, come before us in hearings uh, in the future. But with that, we look forward to your comments. Thank you, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee. I'm honored to appear before you as the President's nominee to be Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, I'm joined by members of my family, my wife for almost 29 years, Grace Rodriguez, uh, the love of my life, who's been my biggest supporter and best friend. We're also joined by two of our three children, Jack and Katie Sullivan, our youngest. Teddy is in the midst of final exams at college, and he's not able to, to join us today. Uh, but I'm immensely proud of, of all of them. Uh, I hope there's a future for them in government service. I, I tell people that they're CIA, Cuban-Irish-Americans. So... Uh, we're, uh, also with us are my mother-in-law, Graciela Rodriguez, and my sister-in-law, Susan Rodriguez. It was an honor to be introduced by Senator Sullivan of Alaska, my, my dear friend and former colleague from the Bush administration. I'm very thankful for his kind words. I want to express my enormous gratitude to President Trump and to Secretary Tillerson for the trust and confidence they have reposed in me. If confirmed, I pledge to devote all that I have to be worthy of that trust and con confidence. By way of personal introduction, I'm the grandson of Irish immigrants who arrived in South Boston in the 1880s. My parents, born in the 1920s, endured the Great Depression, and with millions of their generation, fought and won the Second World War. My father served in the U.S. Navy Submarine Service in the Pacific Theater. My mother was a USO volunteer. We would now call them members of the greatest generation, but they never thought of themselves that way. They rarely spoke of their experiences during the war. One thing they did make clear and instilled in me was a profound love of our country and respect for the high calling of public service. In the 32 years since my law school graduation, those values have animated my career. As Senator Sullivan mentioned, 
I've had the privilege of serving in a variety of positions in the U.S. government. And during that public service, I've learned a great deal about our country, its role in the world, and the functioning of the, uh, of the executive branch. But the most important lessons I learned were humility and respect. As Deputy General Counsel of DOD, I saw firsthand the sacrifices of our men and women in uniform, and I learned to walk humbly through the, walls, through the halls of the Pentagon. I also learned respect for the career civil servants who rarely get the praise they deserve. The executive branch functions because of these men and women, many with decades of experience. A small number of public servants are accepted into the Foreign Service, which I know well. My uncle Bill Sullivan was a Foreign Service officer for 32 years. He was the last U.S. ambassador to Iran in the 1970s. It was his staff in Tehran that was taken hostage on November 4, 1979, a few months after the president had recalled him. It's an earlier date from 1979, however, that sticks in my mind, February 14, Valentine's Day. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran was overrun by a mob, and my uncle and his staff were seized. After a few hours, the Americans were released, and the embassy reopened. My uncle appeared in a picture on the cover of the next issue of Newsweek. He was surrounded by Iranians carrying assault weapons, one of whom was brandishing a bayonet in his face. That day in 1979 is significant not merely because of the drama in Iran, but also because of a tragedy in Afghanistan. Our ambassador, Spike Dubbs, was kidnapped and, assass and assassinated in Kabul. Like my uncle, Ambassador Dubbs was a U.S. Navy World War II veteran and a career Foreign Service officer. The assassination of Ambassador Dubbs and the seizure of our embassy in Tehran on February 14, 1979, made a huge impression on me. I was a college student at the time. I've remained in awe of our Foreign Service officers who venture into such dangerous places on our behalf. If confirmed, it would be my highest honor to work with the Foreign Service, the Civil Service, and the Department's locally employed staff in the conduct of American diplomacy. In a world in which we face significant and enduring threats, these challenging times require leadership from the United States. As Secretary Tillerson said when he came before this committee, to achieve the stability that is foundational to peace and security in the 21st century, American leadership must not only be renewed, it must be asserted. And we'll be aided in the assertion of that leadership by two of our abiding strengths, our allies and our values. We have relationships with allies in this hemisphere and across the globe that extend back many decades and have been the cornerstone of our national security in the post-war era. But our greatest asset is our commitment to the fundamental values expressed at the founding of our nation, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These basic human rights are the bedrock of our republic and at the heart of American leadership in the world. Should I be confirmed, I commit to work with the members of this committee as the administration implements an American foreign policy that is worthy of our ideals as a people, ideals that have been handed down by the many generations that preceded us. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Just uh, one question from me. Do you commit to appear and testify upon request from this committee? I do, Mr. Chairman. Now, with that, I'm going to reserve my time for interjections and turn to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin. 
Um, Mr. Sullivan, first of all, thank you for um, the testimony today, because you make it very clear at the end your commitment to American values, and I, I appreciate that. I want to drill down a little bit on that, as I told you I would in our private meeting. I quoted from Senator McCain in my opening statement, I thought part of his experience and the way that he related to the fact that as a prisoner of war, where he was trying to be broken by the enemy, it was the belief in our values that kept him strong, and that he felt that if America was transactional, if that's how we do business rather than our values, then why shouldn't prisoners of war be transactional also, give up our country in order to achieve more comfort for themselves? They didn't do that. Our soldiers don't do that, and our diplomats shouldn't do that. So I want to hear from you your commitment that as we deal with Russia, as we deal with China, as we deal with countries around the world that we need to deal with, but don't share our commitment to universal values, how America's foreign policy will always be framed in the values that have made us the great nation we are. Senator, our values, as I said in my opening statement, are the bedrock of our republic. Before we became a world power, before we had the world-class military that you mentioned, before we became the economic juggernaut that we are today, we had our values. We, we achieved those successes because all of that was based on our values as Americans, expressed in the Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution. So I'm going to tell you some specific examples. You'll have a chance to visit a lot of countries uh, if you're confirmed. Visiting with the opposition, visiting with NGOs that are not particularly liked by the government, visiting with people who have been persecuted by the government is a clear sign that America stands on the side of universal human rights. Are, are you prepared to make those types of visual commitments so that uh, our leadership is, is maintained? Not only am I prepared to make that commitment going forward, but I have made that commitment as in my prior service in government. I'm a Roman Catholic. When I travel, I always go to Mass and meet with Catholics in the country in which I travel. And that includes countries where the Catholic Church is, for lack of a better word, oppressed, in particular China. Thank you. I appreciate that. The Congress has taken steps to try to give the administration greater tools. In one case, the Minitsky uh, Global Human Rights Bill that was championed by Senator McCain and myself is now available globally, and it's a congressional initiative. It allows the State Department to promote names of individuals who have, who have violated basic human rights for sanctions here in the United States. Uh, our leadership has been recognized globally, and other countries are following suit, doing the exact same thing that America has done, but it requires a robust administration. Are you prepared to use that tool to advance American human rights values? Yes, I am, Senator. There's legislation that we're working on in Congress that is to deal with corruption. We have a model with dealing with trafficking, and I applaud many members of this committee that were deeply involved, including our chairman, who is passionate about stopping modern-day slavery. The TIP report is a very valuable tool in advancing uh, our goals on fighting uh, trafficking in humans. We want to use a similar model to fight corruption. Corruption is growing unfortunately, uh, in too many places in the world. No country is immune from corruption. No country is immune from trafficking. There are countries that are taking steps to protect their country against trafficking, and there's countries that are taking steps to protect their country against corruption. 
having guides in how we conduct our foreign policy because corruption is, is a cancer in a country that leads to instability. Are you prepared to work with members of this committee on legislation that would give greater tools for evaluating how well we're doing and fighting corruption globally? Yes, I am, Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Rubio. Thank you very much, and thank you for your willingness to, to serve once again in government. I want to continue on the theme of human rights. I think it is an essential part of our foreign policy, I, and I think you know this uh, from your time in government and outside of it, that so many of the groups around the world who are fighting for the principles that we as a nation stand for, democracy, free press, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, they look for America for inspiration. I've been touched deeply by examples of that just in the last three months. If you, sometimes we give these speeches on the Senate floor, we don't think anybody hears them, and then you get to interact with someone that was recently released from a prison, and they tell you that what we did in a resolution or in a hearing or on the Senate floor uh, was impactful and, and ran counter to the oppressor's message to them that they don't matter to anybody. Nobody cares about you. And while I think it's important that we here in the Senate continue to stand for these principles, I also think it's important we have a State Department that is structured in a way that shows that this is a priority of the United States. There's no shortage of these, obviously. In Iran, we know about their grotesque human rights record. In Syria, we've seen the horrifying crimes committed against innocent civilians. We also have challenges with some allies in the region, and I think perhaps that is some of the messaging that the Secretary was pointing to. Uh, Egypt is an ally. It is also a human rights violator. And it is important for us as their ally to tell them that that is an unsustainable position moving forward. Saudi Arabia is a country we work with very closely. And yet it is not a human rights uh, star, to say the least. Uh, in Asia, we obviously talk a lot about the North Korean nuclear weapon. We don't talk nearly enough about the forced labor camps that exist there, a horrifying reality. And, of course, in China, we could have days and days of testimony about the thousands of political prisoners. In Europe, obviously, we're aware of Russia's horrifying human rights record. We've seen recently in the pro-Russian areas of Chechnya how LGBT uh, gay men have been rounded up and put in jail. Uh, and again, another horrifying instance. But in our own hemisphere, even as we stand now, we see horrifying human rights violations in Venezuela, uh, dozens of people that have been in jail, some for upwards of three years, total ig ignoring the constitution of that country, the uh, security forces firing on protesters in the street, and of course one that I know is near to you and to me, the issue of Cuba, uh, where we still, despite all this celebratory language about an opening, there are people in jail in Cuba, there are people being rounded up in Cuba, there are people being oppressed systematically in Cuba. I believe the Cuban people are deserving of freedom and democracy just like the people in the Dominican Republic have. Just like the people in Haiti just had an election. Just like the people in Colombia. Just like the people, why are Cubans any less... Uh, uh, worthy of those basic freedoms. And what I would ask you to share with the committee is what you shared with me on the issue of human rights, in particular with Cuba, but broader. This is not just an issue that is of uh, academic interest. In your own family, uh, through marriage, you actually have a gentleman who experienced the uh, horrifying violation of human rights, who experienced uh, being jailed by an oppressive regime and who is a Floridian, and you shared that story with me, and, and to me that's very important because it tells me that we have someone here before us who understands human rights and oppression, not because he read about it in a book, because he knows and loves someone who himself has been a victim of the denial of freedom. And I would just invite you to share with the committee for a moment the, the story of this incredible man and, and the impact that he's had on your thinking with regards to all of this. Thank you, Senator. Uh, you're referring to my, uh, my wife and my mother-in-law's uncle, uh, Jose Puyals, 
who was a political prisoner in Cuba for 27 years, over 27 years. He was one of the so-called plantados in, uh, in Castro's prisons. He spent Explain seven- the plantado, what, what? Plantados were those prisoners who refused to cooperate, refused to wear prison uniforms. They were uh, planted in their cells and he was in solitary confinement for seven years. He was sustained by his religious faith, his Catholic faith, his wife, who despite the fact that she had the opportunity to leave Cuba and come to the United States, stayed on the island so that she could, in those few opportunities when she could, meet with him. He was released from prison a week after my, uh, my wife and I got married in 1988, and he's still alive today. He's 90, 92, almost 93 years old, and he's a great inspiration to our family and an inspiration to me and someone that my experience with, with in talking to him uh, inspires me to serve in the United States government to ensure that our government provides the, the leadership that's necessary to protect human rights around the world, to protect men like Jose Puyals. And I would just close by saying, as proof that there is justice in the universe, uh, Jose is alive and his oppressor is dead. Amen. Yeah. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Um, thank you, uh, Mr. Sullivan, for um, your willingness to return to government service and for your um, strong assertion uh, of your commitment to our basic values uh, and your willingness to take up this work on behalf of the American people. Um, I am encouraged uh, by your statement in your opening um, that you've remained in awe of our foreign service officers who venture into dangerous places on our behalf, and I'm encouraged by the stories you shared with me and that you just shared in response uh, to Senator Rubio's questioning. Um, so I look forward to working with you uh, and to finding ways that we can uh, together continue to speak up about human rights, about democracy, uh, to meet with and to advocate for the foreign service officers uh, around the world who today are a little anxious about their place uh, in the State Department and uh, are looking for a, a clarity about support for their service and their mission. Um, just three quick questions, if I might. Uh, we talked a little bit about your service in the Commerce Department. Um, how do you view the Power Africa initiative? Um, I think it has been a successful public-private partnership that helps bring private sector uh, ingenuity and effort uh, into uh, the basic development challenge of infrastructure on the continent. Um, is that something that you think the Trump administration might well embrace and continue to move forward? Yes, Senator, I, I, I agree, and we discussed that uh, yesterday in our, in our meeting, and I'd also add that we discussed sub-Saharan Africa mm -hmm. as a place that we can't lose sight of, of the opportunities that are there, both for the sake of promoting human development, economic development uh, in those many countries, but also as, an, as uh, protection of U.S. interests, both national security and economic prosperity. So I look forward to working with you on that, Senator. Thank you. One of the things I'm concerned about is that in the absence of uh, Russia paying some price for its interference uh, in our 2016 election, arguably in France's election just this past week, uh, and potentially in, Germans, uh, in the, the election in Germany uh, that is upcoming, that they'll simply continue and become more aggressive and more robustly engaged. Um, how do you think we could best deter Russia? Uh, from future cyber attacks and efforts to subvert democracy um, throughout, uh, the West, throughout our Western European allies uh, and here in the United States? Well, Senator, it's a, it's a persistent threat that we face, uh, most recently from, uh, from Russia in our, in our election and, as you, as you mentioned, in the, uh, 
the elections in Europe and France and the Netherlands and upcoming elections in Germany and Italy next year or maybe later this year. Um, as the Secretary has said, Secretary Tillerson uh, has met with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, with President Putin, raised these issues directly with the Russians. Um, I believe we have to be robust in our response uh, to this intrusion into our democracy. When we talk about basic human rights, our republic is premised on a represent representative democracy. Uh, interference with our political processes is simply unacceptable. It's a profound threat to our way of life, and we need to respond as robustly as we can using all of the means we have at our disposal. I'm encouraged to hear you say that because uh, I've heard expressions of concern uh, from representatives of some of our European allies, particularly those closest to Russia geographically, who say that if we're not going to stand up and defend our democracy, um, how can they count on us to defend theirs? Uh, and that sense of uncertainty about our future actions, uh, I think, makes all of us uh, weaker. Um, last, what do you think we should be doing uh, to restrain Iran's destabilizing actions in the Middle East and throughout the region? Um, I think they continue uh, to engage in uh, destabilizing actions throughout the region, uh, in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq, and elsewhere, uh, and coming up with a sustained bipartisan approach to Iran is, I think, one of our major foreign policy challenges. Uh, I agree, Senator. Uh, Iran policy is currently under review in the administration. Um, I would say that Iran has been a persistent uh, threat to U.S. national interests, national security interests in many areas, including those that you mentioned. Um, the Secretary has, uh, has sent a letter to this committee regarding Iranian compliance with the JCPOA. I thought Secretary Mattis best characterized the JCPOA in his testimony before the Armed Services Committee in which he described it as a, uh, an imperfect arms control agreement, not a treaty of friendship. We have a lot of other problems that we need to address with Iran beyond the JCPOA and their nuclear program. We need to make sure that they comply with the terms of that, uh, that, that agreement, but we have a number of other problems that we need to address with them, whether it's their sponsorship of terrorism, human rights in their own country, ballistic missile programs, the list goes on. Um, I agree, and I look forward uh, to having you testify before this committee in the future uh, and to hearing that you visit with foreign service officers as well as with the political opposition, human rights activists, and NGOs uh, in your travels around the world. Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. Thank you. Senator Flake. Thank you. <clears throat> I appreciate the opportunity to meet with you and, and, uh, and also to hear your testimony here and your willingness to serve. Um, I enjoyed the discussion that uh, Senator Rubio had with regard to Cuba. Uh, many of us feel strongly uh, about uh, ways that we can uh, hasten the change in Cuba and move toward democracy. Uh, I happen to think that the, some of the measures taken by the last administration with regard to allowing Cuban-American travel, uh, allowing increase in remittances, have allowed a lot of Cubans, and I think we've gone from virtually well, very little uh, Cuban employment outside of the government sector to today, about one in four Cubans is employed in the so-called private sector in Cuba, running uh, bed and breakfasts or private restaurants or beauty shops, auto repair facilities, and have some modicum of independence from the government, more than they had before. And I think that that's a good development. There are obviously still human rights abuses that take place. But the question is, how do we best ensure that uh, that uh, freedom is hastened and, and we move forward. And I, I 
I know that uh, those policies are being reviewed, and I hope that we'll uh, look at the whole picture there and see where we are as opposed to where we were a few years ago. We've had policies in place for 50 years that haven't moved the needle very far until now. Um, with regard to the State Department and some of the things that you'll be involved with, um, there's a report recently uh, noting that there are 67 special envoy, special representative, and special coordinator positions at the department, um, most of them outside of the regular bureaus, and a handful of them, uh, only a handful of them, approximately 20, have been authorized by Congress. Um, from a managerial perspective, how do we deal with this? Um, is there going to be an effort to uh, wind down some of these special envoy positions? Just as a matter of note, uh, they seem pretty duplicative. For example, we have a special envoy and coordinator for international energy affairs, as well as the special envoy for climate change and the special representative for environmental and water resources. This is over and above any other positions that we have at state. And then we have a special envoy for North Korean human rights issues and a special envoy for the six-party talks and a special representative for uh, North Korea policy. Again, this is all in addition to regular State Department positions. From a managerial perspective, how are we dealing with these special envoy positions? Uh, thank you, Senator Flake. Uh, this is all part of this, uh, Secretary Tillerson's review of the mission of the department with the, with the intent of basically bringing the department into the 21st century to address the challenges we have now. He's reached out to all employees of the department, having listening sessions with uh, employees of the department to discuss the best way to, to define and accomplish our missions. With respect to the special envoy positions, you've, you've mentioned Senator Flake, my concern without addressing any particular office is that when a when a an office like that is created outside of the chain of the chain of command in the uh, in the bureaucracy it removes some level of accountability for those individuals who've been nominated by the president reviewed by this committee uh, and confirmed whether they serve at the assistant secretary or undersecretary level we then appoint a special envoy for a particular issue who is outside that chain of command, this committee has not reviewed that person's qualifications. Um, and it, in many ways, will undermine the leadership and the authority of those individuals who've been put in positions of substantial authority because there's somebody outside of that chain of authority who's got responsibility for that narrow issue. Well, that's my concern as well. I hope that we can move forward and... Uh and make some changes here. Or uh, my colleague just mentioned maybe we need a special envoy for special envoys. <laughs> and, and it would, uh, but absent that, uh, we, we've got to get a handle on this when, with only 20 of the 67 even authorized by Congress. And uh, so many very duplicative. Um, it would seem that, uh, you know, a fully functioning, right functioning State Department would, uh, would seek to get some of its power and authority back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I would point out the uh, it's not just the envoys, but in many cases, uh, very, very large staffs that support them. And we had testimony in a prior hear hearing where from Republican and Democrat witnesses who had served at the State Department that in many cases 
these envoys were put in place to work around uh, folks that otherwise couldn't perform in those roles. So I do hope you'll look closely at that and uh, appreciate the top to bottom review that's taking place. Senator Menendez. Uh, congratulations on your nomination, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. We started last week. Along with many others in this committee, I am deeply concerned about the lack of senior management positions that have yet to be filled at the State Department. And we welcome the opportunity to move forward with many more nominees because I believe leaving senior positions that require Senate-confirmed, empowered individuals vacant undermines the ability of the Department to carry out its mission, which ultimately comprises our, um, compromises, I should say, our foreign policy and our national security objectives. So uh, this is a department uh, for those of us uh, who care deeply about foreign policy and the men and women who dedicate their lives to serving uh, this country overseas. It's critically important that we see senior leadership uh, who also values the mission of the State Department, uh, will fight for its employees, its proper place in the national security apparatus, and its budget. So my question is, are you that person? I am, Senator. Um, and uh, you're committed uh, to those goals. I am committed to making the State Department the preeminent force to protect American values and promote American values in the world. So uh, given your experience at the Commerce Department and the private sector, you, you come to some degree with a, a greater business orientation towards foreign policy. Uh, one of the things that I found in my 25 years in Congress is that uh, sanctions uh, can be a powerful tool in terms of peaceful diplomacy uh, arsenal. Uh, I know that you have experience advising clients on sanctions compliance in Russia, Cuba, just to mention a couple. Do you believe sanctions are an effective tool of foreign policy? Absolutely. Uh, do you believe that the network of sanctions we have in place on adversarial countries like Russia and Iran should be kept in place at this time? Uh, I believe they should be reviewed to make sure they're adequate. So kept in place and, and potentially uh, ratcheted up as necessary. Okay. Um, now, I want to echo the remarks of the ranking member. Uh, one of the hallmarks of my career uh, has been human rights and democracy globally. And, you know, uh, most of us who pay attention to foreign policy recognize that leading with our values, including prioritizing human rights in our diplomacy, is a critical part of promoting our national security. So I'm really concerned about Secretary Tillerson's comments. I, I'm also concerned that notwithstanding his comments, I haven't seen so far in the first four or five months uh, human rights and democracy raised uh, very often. And um, there's no question that there are times that there may be an immediate national security goal in which uh, that must take precedence. But history has proven unequivocally that countries who share our values of human rights, democratic governance, fundamental freedoms, make more stable countries. They make more prosperous countries. They're less likely to create war on their neighbors or potentially against us. Now, we have somehow forgotten that history at times. We have engaged with dictators and tyrants. Uh, and in the short term, it may have served us, but in the long term, boy, are we paying huge consequences for it, huge consequences for it, and I could rattle off a series of countries in which we did that. If you are sitting in Combinado del Este in Cuba, 
believe me, you want someone speaking about human rights and democracy. If you are being human trafficked uh, by some slave trafficker, whether for sex or labor, you want somebody to speak out about human rights and democracy. If you're struggling inside of your country in Southeast Asia to change the essence of your life under a government that is totalitarian, you want somebody to speak out about human rights and democracy. So I hope that what I heard you say to Senator Rubio, your comments to me, others that have said for the record, I, I, I cannot emphasize it enough because we need someone who has the moral clarity that Nikki Haley has. I, I voted for her even though I didn't think she had a lot of foreign policy experience or any. I'm not sure I would have hired her for my senior foreign policy person. But I think she's outstanding. But she has moral clarity. And that moral clarity can ultimately drive us in the right direction. And I hope that you have that moral clarity as the number two person at the State Department. Thank, Thank you, you, Senator. Just on that note, we, we had some issues, uh, and we've had continuing discussions on the TIP report. I think most of us felt like political interference took place to accommodate the TPP as it relates to certain countries on the TIP report itself. Um, matter of fact, I don't think it, I, I'm pretty certain that that did occur. Um, since that time, we've had a much different relationship with the State Department uh, under two administrations as it relates to that. I, I just wish and hope you will confirm the fact that you will do everything in your power to, ass to assure us that the TIP report will be done with the utmost of integrity. And when you meet with foreign officials, it will be an issue that you bring up uh, when that is necessary. I will, Senator, and I know that Secretary Tillerson feels that way as well, as he said to this committee. Okay. Senator, Senator Young. Mr. Sullivan, I, I enjoyed our visit together in our office, and uh, uh, thank you again for your interest in serving. There's a matter that's come to my attention since our meeting I'd, I'd like to bring up in this hearing. On April 21st of this year, the Ethiopian government issued an order to suspend indefinitely international adoptions from their country. According to our State Department, this has left dozens of U.S. families in the late stages of the adoption process, unable to obtain the necessary paperwork to bring home their legally adopted children. This includes the Oren family from my home state of Indiana. Uh, they have successfully adopted their son under Ethiopian law, but are unable to bring that son home to Indiana because of the Ethiopian government. Uh, which is unwilling to issue the paperwork necessary to receive an exit visa. As a father of four young children, I take this especially seriously, um, as uh, all Americans should. In an email this morning, Ms. Mrs. Oren wrote the following. We met, interacted with, and began the attachment process with our son while we were, were in Ethiopia. He is almost four years old. He knows where his parents and that he was supposed to come home with us on our trip. He was upset and confused when we had to say goodbye, leaving him in an orphanage while we had to return to the States without him. Now, I had an opportunity yesterday to speak with the Ethiopian ambassador about this issue, and my hope is it can be resolved quickly. And so, Mr. Sullivan, if it's not resolved quickly, once confirmed, will you work with my office to not only elevate this issue, but to make clear to the Ethiopian government at the highest level that this is important? 
uh, that we need to resolve this issue. Uh, we need their assistance, uh, especially for families like the Orans who have already legally adopted their children uh, when this order was issued. Senator Young, if confirmed, I would be honored to do so. Thank you. Mr. Sullivan, I'm a uh, strong supporter of the international affairs budget. I've made that really clear, uh, as have so many uh, of my colleagues on this committee. As of yesterday, the General Accountability Office lists 132 recommendations, including 22 priority recommendations for the Department of State that have not been implemented or fully implemented. Some of these open recommendations go back to 2011. Among other issues, these recommendations relate to important topics such as international food assistance, human trafficking, fraud oversight, management challenges, diplomatic security, North Korean sanctions, and terrorism. Um, in order to maintain strong support for international affairs among the American people, they're going to insist upon uh, proper and responsible stewardship of every single dollar we've, we spend on that account. So, um, Mr. Sullivan, as a nominee to serve as Deputy Secretary of State, which uh, at least historically has played a very important role with respect to some of these management and, and budgetary challenges, do you agree that this is important for this committee to have full visibility on the status of these open recommendations? Yes, I do, Senator Young. Okay. Well, that's why I, along with Senators Menendez, Rubio, and Coons, introduced legislation, S-418, the Department of State and United States Agency for International Development Accountability Act of 2017. Mr. Sullivan, once confirmed, do you commit to providing, as this legislation asks that uh, we do, uh, providing to this committee and to my office without delay detailed written unclassified updates regarding the status of all open GAO recommendations for the Department of State. Senator Young, if confirmed, yes, I do. I take GAO reports, IG reports very seriously when I was Deputy Secretary of Commerce and will do so as Deputy Secretary of State if confirmed. Okay. And, and further, for any recommendation state has decided to adopt, will you provide a timeline for implementation and an explanation for any delay? Of course, Senator, I would consider that part of our interaction with you and this members of the mem members of this committee. And for those recommendations, state has decided not to implement or fully implement. Will you provide a detailed justification, sir? Certainly. All right. Thank you. I have a, a bit of remaining time here. Uh, in your prepared statement, you mentioned the 1979 seizure of our embassy in Tehran uh, and the assassination of Ambassador Spike Dubbs in Afghanistan. On March 9, the IG for the Department of State, Steve Linick, testified before the State and Foreign Ops Subcommittee of the House of Probes Committee. In his written testimony, the IG cited system, systemic issues in the department related to physical security measures. The IG cited a lack of coordination and an inability to track and prioritize physical security needs. More than four and a half years after the terrorist attack in Benghazi on our diplomatic facility, and with events of 1979 in mind, would you agree that the Department of State can and must do better when it comes to physical security and emergency action plans at our posts overseas? Senator, I would have no higher priority if confirmed as Deputy Secretary of State than to protect our men and women that we send abroad on our behalf. Have you reviewed this IG testimony, sir? I have not, but will make that a priority if confirmed. That was my follow-up. Thank you. I yield back. Yeah, you agreed a lot a couple of questions back. Let me just uh, um, ask you, do you have any sense of the contours of the top-to-bottom review that's taking place and any sense of... What type of realignments might take place within the State Department? 
In my discussions with the Secretary, he's made clear that he has no preconceived ideas on how, what the outcome should be. He's started this uh, interaction with uh, all the employees of the department to get their feedback and their input, and I look forward to working with him on, on that. Do you have any sense of when that will be complete? I haven't spoken to the Secretary about that, but uh, my, uh, my goal would be to have it completed as, as quickly as humanly possible. Is that having any impact from what you can tell on appointing uh, assistant secretaries and, and other positions there? To my, my, I'm not involved in the process, uh, the selection process. Now, my perception as an outsider is that any slowness in, uh, in making appointments is not related to the review of the department's mission and its structure that's, uh, that's ongoing. And uh, I commit, if I am confirmed, to making sure that those personnel appointments are moved forward as quickly as possible. Yeah. So let me, uh, my sense is they've actually selected most of those positions prior to you being there. Um, that's my sense, and they're going to be forthcoming soon. But you, you don't have any sense of when the top-to-bottom review will be complete, and you'll have a layout of, as to how the new State Department, if you will, is going to function? I haven't spoken to the secretary about the timing of what he thinks the timing should be. We've talked about the mechanics and the process that he's going through. I haven't had that conversation with him yet, but I look forward to it and to also working with you and members of this committee on making sure that that review is done as expeditiously as possible. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I'd be happy to pick up on that line of questioning. First, uh, thank you for your willingness to, start, to serve. Um, I really enjoyed uh, our meeting uh, together. Uh, your resume is uh, impressive, your willingness to come back into government to serve the country that you love. Um, to be honest, your resume is maybe not the one that we had expected to receive for this position. We have a president who has no diplomatic experience, a secretary of state who has no diplomatic experience. Uh, and while you have extensive experience running the operations of government, you don't have direct diplomatic experience either. And so these questions about the reorganization of the department, which I assume you will be riding herd over, are uh, really critical, given the fact that I think, as you've acknowledged, uh, you are um, uh, unlikely to be sent out around the world as a frontline diplomat, given that your responsibilities will largely be in helping to run the operations of a very large uh, department. Um, so you took this job understanding that there was a reorganization that was going to be undertaken. I think you've done a good job of articulating what you think the core mission of the State Department is, but this reorganization is done under the principle that the State Department has departed from the core mission. That's what the Secretary of State has said, and his belief is we need to get back to the core mission. So explain to me your view of how the State Department has departed from its core mission, thus necessitating this reorganization. Um, well, I, I would characterize it, uh, Senator Murphy. Well, first of all, thank you uh, for uh, for our discussion yesterday. I, I uh, very much enjoyed it. I, uh, I think it's the world has changed in the 21st century, uh, and the, our State Department and the way it's organized hasn't changed. Uh, the Defense Department has, in my experience in government, has reorganized several times in the same time frame in which the State Department has not. And let me give you an example and of an area where I think we need to focus on management issues, and that's the intersection of our regional bureaus, which 
we need to have, obviously, and the functional bureaus that have been created and multiplied over time as issues have arisen. I think the interconnection between those two and to make sure that they are united in promoting a, uh, a, our common interests on uh, national security and economic uh, prosperity is an area where we really need to focus. Uh, and so it, it's not so much that it, I think the world has changed. We have added functional bureaus, for example, as issues have arisen, but we haven't integrated uh, our, our approach to this new world with new technologies, new means of communication, new threats, transnational threats, uh, that are much different from the world that existed, say, in the mid-1990s. So I, I agree. I think that's exactly the problem. The world has, has changed, and while we have seen some of our adversaries beef up their military capacity, uh, what has really changed is the panoply of non-military threats, or at least uh, threats that are not conventional military threats that are presented to the United States. Disease epidemics, famine, online terrorist organizations recruiting lone wolf attackers, global warming, creeping corruption... Um, and, and yet what worries me is that given the fact that the world has changed and all of these non-military threats have multiplied, this reorganization essentially has been predetermined by a president who has called for a 30% reduction in the capacity of the State Department while calling for a $50 billion investment in the Department of Defense. So uh, given the fact that the world has changed, and I think you would agree, that the number of non-military threats presented to the United States has multiplied, how can, you, how can you take on a job of reorganization, which you have said um, is not prejudged in its outcome, given the fact that the President of the United States, your boss and Secretary Tillerson's boss, is commanding you to conduct that reorganization through a means that results in thousands of layoffs and dramatic cuts to the department? How is the outcome here not predetermined that the reorganization is essentially just an excuse to slash and burn the department? Well, Senator, I, I, would, I would repeat that the, the outcome from the Secretary's perspective is not preordained. For example, on uh, job cuts that you mentioned, I know from speaking to the Secretary, there is no decision made on either, despite what's been reported in the press on particular numbers of job cuts and so forth, uh, what the Secretary has undertaken is a review of the mission of the Department to make sure that the workflows, the work product of that Department, meets those missions and is, and is we are organized in a way to accomplish those missions in the most efficient and accountable way possible. And that's my commitment to you, Senator. Right. Well, thank you very much. Again, uh, I really appreciate your willingness to serve. This is a, a, a very tough job, but your willingness to continue to talk to us um, uh, gives me uh, confidence that we can, uh, can build on the conversations we've had. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. If I could, um, so personally, I'm, I think having top-to-bottom reviews are good things for everyone. I will say the reason that the State Department's being cut by 30% in this initial budget is that the real drivers of our deficits are unwilling to be looked at. And so we, administration appears to me, is looking at a department that many people around America believe um, doesn't spend its money well. For some reason, Americans think we spend 25% of our money on U.S. on aid and other diplomacy efforts when we spend one. And I think we've done a pretty good job recently causing people to understand the importance of this. Fortunately, our military generals have done the same. But I do think it's incumbent upon all of us to 
not just make sure we're spending the dollars well, uh, and certainly food aid and reform and those kind of things should be undertaken, but uh, I think as a committee to point out that uh, to the extent we don't carry out these activities, our men and women in uniform that we respect and admire are more likely going to be in harm's way, and I think we've done a pretty good job of that recently, but let's face it. The skinny budget came out because this administration, nor Congress, is willing to deal with the major drivers of deficits, and it was a way of looking as if we were addressing deficits when we're really not. That's what's happening here, and I think it's incumbent upon us to, to understand that's what's happening. Senator Paul. Congratulations on your nomination, and welcome. Um, there's been some discussion of sort of whether or not diplomacy or our country's policy should in be the spreading of human rights and the uh, somehow vanquishing of human rights abusers around the world as our policy or whether it should be more realistic. There have been many voices saying, well, we, you know, really needs to be the preeminent part of our foreign policy to vanquish those who are human rights abusers. But I guess uh, while we're all for that and we're all for the, the notion that we wish there weren't these human rights abuses around the world, sometimes I think that that policy leads to unintended consequences. So, for example, uh, was Colonel Qaddafi a human rights abuser? I don't probably think there's any question he probably was. Uh, would we wish there'd be someone better involved in running Libya? Yes. After his negotiating away his nuclear weapons, there are some ramifications that we're still living with. The West toppled him anyway. Uh, the message that that sent to North Korea and the message that that sent to Iran was, you know, what if you get rid of your nuclear weapons, you may well be toppled by the West. And so I guess my question to you is, in balancing sort of the realism of how the world is and how we see it with human rights, um, would you say that there were unintended consequences of toppling Gaddafi in Libya? Absolutely, Senator. I think we're seeing them on a daily basis. Same would go with regard to Iraq. You know, uh, Hussein was accused of um, gassing the Kurds, using chemical weapons. We've had another instance of that now. And so everybody would say, well, Hussein was a, a terrible person we should get rid of. The problem is it also led to unintended consequences that I think now the same people who want to get rid of Hussein now want to get rid of the government of Iran, and Iran is emboldened because of the counterbalance of Iraq being gone. So to every action there is a, is a reaction, an unintended one, and I think that it's important that we have people involved in the State Department who understand that uh, your job, as I see it, is diplomacy, not war. Now, it doesn't say we don't have military might and that we don't have the expression of that and the uh, potential threat of that, but uh, we've got plenty of voices for that. My hope is that yours will be a voice for diplomacy and that you recognize that that is your role or the job description, a part of it other than the management of the State Department, is that the State Department in general is supposed to be about diplomacy. And if you could comment on sort of the role of the State Department in diplomacy in general terms, I'd appreciate it. Certainly. Uh, thank you, Senator Paul. Yes, I, I think that is emphatically the mission of the State Department, and I think our Secretary of Defense, Secretary Mattis, would agree with that. Uh, and I was originally selected to work for Secretary, nominated to work for Secretary Mattis at the Defense Department. I have a fundamentally different job at the State Department, fundamentally different mission, uh, which I'm committed to. Um, with respect to our, our most recent discussions, uh, I think that Concerns about the use of military force in forcing regime change, for example, uh, are very serious concerns. Uh, use of military force should only be as a last resort. 
uh, when our national interests are vital national interests are at stake, but there's no diminution of our commitment to our fundamental values as Americans on which our foreign policy, our diplomacy, that you and I agree should be the, at the heart of what we do, is, uh, is based. Yeah, and I agree, and I think that's the point in the discussion of realism versus human rights. We should never shy away from saying and representing and being this symbol of, of freedom and liberty around the world and uh, justice. But at the same time, if we as our foreign policy say we are going to topple every regime that has a human rights abuse, we'll be at war with about 50 countries right now. And uh, the unintended consequence is one of bankrupting the country, but two of getting us involved in wars for which we have no answer and there is no end. Uh, would be interminable. So I think the overall debate on realism, and many have tried to sort of cast aspersions on Tillerson's comments, but I think he was recognizing that there is a balance. We never give up on what we stand for and that we are this shining light as a, as a free nation, but we also don't need to be naive enough that we think that we are somehow the uh, you know, uh, descendants of Wilsonian, let's make the world safe for democracy. If we're unwilling to look at the ramifications of our involvement around the world and particularly getting involved in another war in Yemen, whether it will be better or worse for us, I have cautioned that in Yemen I have a a fear that we get involved in a war that both sides are beaten down and al-Qaeda shows up the same way ISIS showed up in Syria, you know, ready to pick up the pieces of the chaos there. And that if we don't think that through in advance and don't think that there is got to be a diplomatic arm to our government that we're making a big mistake. But I wish you well, and I hope you will be one of the sane voices for diplomacy. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Senator Markley. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and, and thank you for put, placing yourself forward uh, for this responsibility. I wanted to ask you about the, the Paris Agreement that's under discussion right, right now. A tremendously high percentage of the world's governments have, have joined up for voluntary commitments to try to address the issue of carbon pollution and its impact on a warming planet. And the, the question is, uh, should we be in or out? A thousand companies have weighed in with the State Department to say we should, we should be in, including oil companies, ExxonMobil and ConocoPhillips. What do, what do you think? Should we be in the Paris Agreement? Should we stay in or, or otherwise? Thank you, Senator Merkley. I, uh, I understand that the, there is an ongoing discussion within the administration uh, and within the interagency on uh, partic continued participation in the, uh, in the Paris Agreement. There are complex issues, as, as you know better than I, uh, including legal issues with respect to Article 4.11 and so forth. Um, I, would, I haven't been involved in those discussions, but what I would say to you, Senator, is my view as a general matter is that the United States is best served and its interests protected when it has a seat at the table as a general matter. Now, with respect to the Paris Agreement, I haven't been involved in the discussions. I know that they're ongoing, but that's my general approach, Senator. And that is the point that the Secretary of State has made uh, and the point he is arguing, that we should keep a seat at the table. In keeping a seat at the table, we can either, since the, the agreements are non-binding, we can either seek to uphold the, the uh, pledges that we made or we can, we can ignore those. If we do stay at the table, should we seek to honor the pledges we made for reducing our carbon dioxide production? Uh, I understand that there is both a policy and a legal component to that question, Senator. Um, 
I have not been involved in the discussions on that and have not studied those issues in sufficient detail to provide you with a definitive answer today. I would be happy if confirmed to focus and to participate in that discussion uh, with you personally, uh, if confirmed. Let me turn to uh, North Korea. Uh, we've had uh, statements coming out of the administration from different individuals, some arguing that primarily military pressure is going to make the difference, and we have the carrier strike group uh, positioned off, off North Korea. Uh, we have others saying that the pressure from China is going to make the difference. Uh, we have others saying that, uh, well, we are laying the ground for negotiations. All of this creates a, a wide space for potential miscommunication, which could lead to events spiraling out of control. Should it be the State Department that's taking the lead in creating a, a clear, consolidated message to avoid misunderstandings? Yes, Senator, and I think that that's the, the primary function of the State Department is to be the Secretary of State, to be the President's principal foreign policy advisor and spokesperson on U.S. foreign policy. Having said that, I think the Secretary's approach to North Korea, is, and he's been very clear about this, is that our goal is to have a denuclearized Korean peninsula. That is our objective, and we're going to use all the means at our disposal, our national power, uh, to accomplish that in working with allies, partners, and others, uh, and in using uh, and having uh, as, a, uh, as an option uh, the use of, of other, uh, other means at our disposal at the Defense Department. The administration has been very complimentary of China and China applying pressure. That pressure has been directed more, however, to stop at what they refer to provocative acts, that is, missile tests, nuclear tests, than denuclearization. Is China on board with the, the vision that America has of denuclearizing North Korea? Um, I haven't been involved in those discussions, Senator. Um, I really know only what I read in the news media. Uh, but my understanding is that uh, there has been positive uh, feedback from the Chinese, uh, giving us hope that, as the Secretary has described it, leaning in on the Chinese and really trying to convince them how important it is for, for us and for them that the Chinese, that the Korean Peninsula be denuclearized, um, it gives us some basis for, I won't say optimism, but for at least going forward with this policy. Uh, Daniel Rondi was before the committee, and, and he was noting, he's from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, and he had a lot of concerns about USAID being merged with the State Department because USAID's vision for assistance is a longer-term vision, while often diplomatic circumstances require a, a vision of six months to two years versus a 10 to 20 year vision. Should USAID be brought under the more direct influence of the short term diplomatic vision? Um, I know that that's a question that will be considered in the, uh, the review that the Secretary has undertaken. I would say, uh, Senator Merkley, that I've met with virtually every former Deputy Secretary of State to discuss this and, and other issues. Um, I understand both the cultural and policy differences between AID and the Foreign Service. In some ways, it reminds me of the differences when I was at Commerce between our scientists at NOAA who do climate science, which is longer term, and the, uh, the weather scientists who are focused on short-term weather. I understand that, that difference in the AID state foreign policy context. So um, I would look forward to working with you and members of the committee as we consider the best way forward to implement uh, 
our foreign aid policy in a way that promotes U.S. objectives, protects our interests, um, and does so in an efficient way, understanding the unique role of AID, the culture of the, the agency, and the important role that its employees provide. I'll, I'll take that as a, at least a, a point that you understand the argument of and the concern about diluting the, the vision and work of AID. Absolutely. Thank you. If I could give an editorial, I, I don't, I'd get the sense there's no beginning point that says they should be combined, that uh, that's not where people are starting. It may end up, that may be where they finish, but just for what it's worth, I do not think that's where they're beginning. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Sullivan, thank you very much for your willingness to serve, uh, and thank you to your family for your willingness to serve uh, alongside uh, as well. So thank you for being here. Uh, Mr. Sullivan, do you believe in sustained and consistent American engagement around the globe? Yes, I do, Senator. What, what does that mean to you? What does consistent and sustained engagement mean to you? Well, from the State Department's perspective, it means that we have a, uh, a, a cadre of foreign service officers, junior to senior, around the world representing U.S. interests, both uh, on the national security sphere, political sphere, economic sphere. And we also have at our embassies foreign commercial service officers, whom I know well, who are employees of the Commerce Department. And when I was Deputy Secretary of Commerce, worked very closely with them in promoting U.S. business interests abroad, protecting our uh, U.S. companies doing business abroad. And thank you for that. I think the questions that Senator Murphy and Senator Young brought up about restructuring are important. And, uh, of course, uh, when we talk about different bureaus, the East Asia Pacific Bureau, one of the most important bureaus uh, around the globe that's dealing with a population that will soon be 50 percent of global population, uh, economy, uh, the regional economy, which will soon be 50 percent of world GDP. Uh, yet we have a bureau that is perhaps the lowest funded of all the bureaus around the globe, and so I hope that we can pay additional attention as we restructure State Department to reflect priorities. I hope that we will increase our priorities uh, on Asia and the regions represented because, again, it's where our treaty alliances uh, reside. It's where the world's largest standing armies will reside, uh, and it's where our trade uh, is certainly growing uh, and opportunities reside. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about North Korea as well. Uh, if you look at China right now with North Korea, uh, it was recently announced that China's trade with North Korea grew in the first quarter of this year by nearly 40%. Uh, iron exports to China from North Korea grew by 270%. Imports uh, from, uh, for in, in China from North Korea grew. I've met with Chinese officials, met with government officials, and while there may be some positive signs over the past uh, couple of weeks that China is willing to implement uh, its, the United Nations Security Council resolutions to a degree that they had not before, I was disheartened, though, in some of these meetings with Chinese officials that when you have a long conversation about North Korea, their opinion seems to basically slide back into what it has been. And that's basically to allow North Korea to continue to develop uh, a nuclear program with little pressure from China. China controls 90% of North Korea's economy. It's responsible for 90% of North Korea's economy. And if China is serious about holding bad actors responsible for those bad actions, we cannot, as the United States, allow China to backslide into a posture that doesn't hold Kim Jong-un responsible for his bad actions. And so I would hope uh, that the State Department, uh, Secretary Tillerson, yourself, 
would continue our pressure, abandonment of the failed strategic uh, patience doctrine, and continue to apply pressure on the North Korean regime as well as China and other actors who are enabling uh, the proliferation of North, Korea's, uh, uh, North Korea's nuclear program. Do I have your commitment that you will continue to push uh, for pressure on China? Absolutely, Senator. And I hope that that includes uh, fully utilizing, uh, following through with the laws that this Congress has passed under the North Korea Sanctions Act last year, unanimous, uh, last Congress, unanimous uh, approval, bipartisan support for a bill that says if somebody is violating our actions, there's a mandatory investigation and mandatory placement of sanctions on that entity, be it in China, be it in North Korea, or anywhere around the globe. Do I have your commitment that you'll work with us to make sure that those laws are fully executed? Uh, certainly, Senator. Uh, the, the Secretary has made clear that, uh, that we will use all of, the, all of the legal and policy authorities that we have to, as he put it, turn the dial on the pressure on, uh, on China to make sure that uh, we're leaning in, I think was the Secretary's uh, expression, on China, leaning on China more than we ever have to make clear how important this is to the United States. And I hope that in your interactions with Chinese officials that you will make North Korea the highest priority possible because of this concern that China will continue to slide back into uh, its own doctrine of patience with North Korea. Yes, Senator. Thank you. And if you could report back to the committee, that would be truly critical. I, and again, uh, what I don't want to see is any kind of a softening of our approach toward our allies or other nations around the globe to try to make China happy uh, because we think they are going to take actions against North Korea. Uh, until they show that, that sustained commitment to pressuring North Korea, uh, we shouldn't be avoiding, uh, you know, news reports today uh, cite that we may be uh, foregoing a sale of arms to Taiwan. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if Taiwan has asked for that sale uh, to, to, be, to be carried through or followed through. But I don't think we should be foregoing that kind of a, a, of a sale defense uh, equipment to Taiwan because we think China is going to suddenly change their behavior on North Korea because they haven't proven that it's going to be a sustained and consistent uh, commitment to that uh, North Korea denuclearization. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about cybersecurity and where you think cybersecurity priority will be within the State Department, I'd appreciate it. Well, cybersecurity, we were talking about this earlier. The Russian hack of our election is an example of uh, failed cybersecurity by the United States and the United States government. Cybersecurity has got to be one of our highest priorities at the Department of, of State and as, a, as, uh, as an entire government. My experience in government when I was at the Commerce Department was because of our lack of cybersecurity. Now, this was 12 years ago. Uh, all our systems were open to a number of different foreign governments uh, such that we had to create our own internal operating system to communicate among ourselves and prepare documents for the secretary to send to the White House because we had so little confidence that our system we were using wasn't penetrated. So cybersecurity is, uh, for me, a very high priority. Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Sullivan, for... Um, your willingness to take on this responsibility. I, I just want to follow up a little bit on Senator Gardner's point about China, because we had a hearing before the Armed Services Committee where experts testified that there were really only two things that the Chinese were going to respond to from the United States' perspective. One was whether we sanctioned their financial system 
in a way that meant doing business with North Korea would be a challenge for them. And the other was if they believed, truly believed, that there was the danger of war on the Korean Peninsula because of the statements from President Trump. So while I appreciate Secretary Tillerson's reassurances, um, there doesn't seem to be unanimous agreement on what's going to make China respond. I want to go, however, to questions about reorganization at the State Department. And I serve as ranking member on the subcommittee that's tasked with oversight of the State Department and USAID, along with Senator Isaacson. The department has not shared any information with me or with my colleague about what changes they're contemplating to the State Department and to USAID. Do you think it would be helpful for Congress to have a role or to at least have an understanding of what the State Department is contemplating in terms of a reorganization? Yes, I do, Senator. Um, would you then commit to sharing with this committee the plans once they are, I, I don't want to say finalized because I think you will, it would be helpful to engage this committee in understanding what you're thinking about because there are years of experience on this committee that might be helpful in looking at some of the analysis that the department comes up with. My experience in government, Senator, both at, at well, at the, the Justice, Defense, and Commerce Department has been, we've always been best served in the executive branch when we have consulted and coordinated with members of Congress. And in fact, as I was speaking to uh, members of the minority staff yesterday, there have been occasions in my career in government when I have met with staff or members or senators uh, and had very productive conversations, gone back to my department and had people question, what were you thinking going up to talk with those people? Uh, and my experience has been that collaboration, coordination, it's a way to anticipate problems, eliminate problems, eliminate issues before they become problems. Now, we have to protect executive privilege, sure. as I understand it. Look, and there are legal issues uh, and, and so forth, but as a general matter, uh, Senator Shaheen, my view is uh, the U.S. government is at its strongest when there is cooperation and coordination between the branches of government, particularly those in Article I and Article II. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because... Um, again, I know you have suggested that the reports are not correct that point to 2,300 people who are going to be let go at the department and that USAID is going to be folded into state. But the lack of transparency, the lack of engaging um, people in who are concerned about these issues um, is what leads to these kinds of reports, these kinds of concerns that you're hearing expressed today. So I, I would certainly hope that you're point about engagement is one that you will follow. Um, not only have we been a leader around the world because of our values, but we have also, as a country, been a leader in promoting the rights and empowerment of women and girls around the world. And that's been a good investment because what we know is that women tend to give back 90% of what they earn to their families, to their communities and ultimately to their countries. Men only give back 35%. So, um, so it's been a good investment. And I want to hear from you what steps you will take to ensure that 
We continue to support um, these global women's programs that I think have been so important, everything from child marriage to gender-based violence to peace and security. Um, and one of the other rumors about restructuring at the State Department is that the Office of Global Women's Issues will be eliminated. Can you tell me what you know about that and what your commitment is to ensuring that these programs continue? Uh, I, what I know about that, Senator Shaheen, is only what I, I see in, in the press. My, I'm confident that no decisions have been made about whether that office or any particular office would be reorganized, eliminated, or anything done to it. Um, with respect to women's issues and women's empowerment, Senator Cardin is smiling at me, and I feel as though I should have put a paper bag over my head as I'm sitting in front of all the women in my family behind me. Uh, but it's uh, it's an extremely important issue to me, but it, but as in, it, it's important to Secretary Tillerson as well, who has been uh, uh, quite uh, forceful in his statements about the, the very points you've raised, Senator, about the investment in women's, women's health, women's education, women's empowerment, pay dividends many times over than other ordinary programs do. So you have my commitment that that is something that will remain a priority of the department, and more importantly, the Secretary's commitment. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I appreciated the secretaries talking about that and what he had seen in the private sector when at his hearing. Um, and, and then the next thing I saw was the report that the office is going to be eliminated. So again, a little, more, a little transparency and engagement, I think, would go a long way in reassuring people about what the intent is of the restructuring at the State Department. Thank you. If I could follow up. I is it transparency or, or lack of progress? Uh, Has anything actually occurred relative to the streamlining based on what you know? No decisions to my knowledge. Well, I'm not talking about decisions. Right, right. I mean, I mean, progress. Has it even begun? Well, the secretary's process of soliciting feedback from the employees has begun, and the, his own staff's planning on these issues to tee up issues for his decisions, I, be, uh, I believe, have, has, is underway. Uh, I haven't participated in that, so I really don't have more definitive information for you. I think it would be good for the committee to know where the process is right now. Mary Waters behind you as your Sherpa, and I know with your confirmation hearing, it's not the time for you to commit to what you – I don't think you really know what's underway. I think they probably haven't talked to you much about it, so you can't answer these questions. But. But, Mary, if you would, if you'd get back with us this afternoon and share with us where you think that is. I know we've got a committee meeting tomorrow afternoon at 5 with, uh, with McMaster's, and we could share it at that time. But I think, you know, obviously people would like to know. If I could just interject here just for one moment, and this is what I wanted uh, to come back to. Several members have asked you that we be engaged in how the State Department handles reorganization. And you've been very forthcoming about the value of that type of working relationship between members of Congress, this committee, and the State Department. But I think the key point is that before decisions are made, it's important that that input be received. When we're talking, there's members of this committee that are prepared to support decisions that could be perceived to be pretty controversial. But if we read about it being done, you're liable to develop a political backlash that'll make it impossible for you to achieve what you're seeking to do. So I would just urge you at the earliest possible moment to share information. It can be in an informal setting. We don't have to have formal hearings, 
but for us to understand your thinking and for you to get the benefit of our thinking as you're going through a reorganization at the State Department. To me, that's going to be critically important for the success of a reorganization. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witness. I enjoyed our visit. Mr. Chair, I'm just, I want to raise a concern at the start. We have a rule in this committee, and I think generally that nominees should not presume confirmation. And it seems to go way beyond presuming confirmation. I have a sign that says Senator Sullivan sitting there on the desk uh, right next to this witness. I mean, I hope he's not, uh, I hope he doesn't live in Virginia. Um, okay, now we will be serious. I, do, I did enjoy our visit. And one of the things that you said, Mr. Sullivan, we were, when we were chatting was that you've spent some time meeting with former State Department deputy secretaries as you kind of scope out what you might do. Share, share some takeaways from those meetings uh, that you've learned from them that would be helpful to you should you be confirmed. Well, my, my immediate reaction to that question, Senator Kane, is the passion that every one of those men and women, Republican, Democrat, have for the department and its employees, its foreign service officers, its uh, aid professionals, its civil servants. Um, everybody has got enormous respect for the employees of the department, and I know this from my own personal experience, but it's, it's gratifying to talk to people and to hear them tell me about what a treasure we've got in the men and women at the Department of State, and the fact that I'm going to be able to go there and work with them has energized me and uh, is, is my biggest takeaway. There have been a number of common concerns that have been brought up in my discussions. We've talked about one of them today with respect to AID, concerns about morale issues mm -hmm. um, at, at the department. Uh, and in talking to Tech Secretary Tillerson, what I've said to these, uh, these former senior State Department officials, he's been quite emphatic in our discussions about how much he respects the men and women in the department and how helpful they have been to him uh, and so the universal theme is our biggest strength of the department is our people, and we've got to utilize them and lead them in the best way possible. Talk a little bit about, you know, you, since you have had, you know, multiple um, management experiences in both the federal public service and the private sector, I, I'm really interested in this morale question. A huge number of our State Department professionals live in Virginia or have homes in Virginia when they're abroad. I meet them all over the world. Um, I think I told you when I travel, I tend to meet with first and second tour FSO officers, and I always ask them the question, congratulations, you achieved something pretty major by getting this job. What will make you decide to make it a career versus so frustrated that you'll leave? And then I just don't say anything else, and I listen for an hour and a half. I am worried about some of the morale issues. The, the budget proposals, you know, could raise additional morale issues, and I know that a lot of colleagues have already asked you about that, but in your role, how would you kind of approach the management challenge of, of trying to assure people and, and, and create a high morale organization, which is ultimately going to be a higher productivity organization? Well, Senator, these are men and women who've dedicated their lives to public service and public service in dangerous places uh, on our behalf. They're not in it for the money. They want to make a difference for the United States, for the world. Uh, what they're looking for is leadership and leaders who engage with them, explain what we're about, what this, what this reconceptualizing the department is about, making, as the secretary has said, 
making their jobs worthwhile for them personally. It's not about paying them more money, although everybody would like more money. They're in it because they want to do right by the United States, and they want to do right by, uh, by their own moral compass and their work for, for, uh, to help people around the world. So providing that leadership, that they are involved in an enterprise that is doing good, that is protecting our interests and our values, that's the most important thing. And communicating that to them, not just letting them read about it in the paper, but communicating it to them personally. Thank you. I'll just ask one kind of regional area that I like to focus on a lot, and that's the Americas. Um, I think the U.S. in the last few years, the diplomacy involved with the Cuba deal, which, you know, was controversial, but in my view has been a, a positive uh, the U.S. decision to diplomatically aid the peace negotiations in Colombia, which have led to a ceasefire. The U.S. has played some important roles in diplomacy, and I think that we often spend a lot of our State Department time flying east-west around the globe and not enough time in state or defense or other areas focusing north-south. To the extent that you've had conversations either with the Secretary or the Administration, what, what could you tell us about areas of potential focus in the Americas uh, well, at the State Department. Yes, thank you, Senator. Well, we spoke about this when, when, we, when we visited uh, earlier. Um, the senior, the principals are, always have their time chewed up with whatever the hot topic is today, another missile test in North Korea, uh, some atrocity in Syria, problems in, in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. And my concern, and I've discussed this with the Secretary, I discussed it with Secretary Mattis when I was under consideration to be the General Counsel of the Department of Defense. The United States needs to be able to walk and chew gum, for lack of a better term. Uh, as we discussed, the Roosevelt administration was able to fight wars in the Atlantic and the Pacific, and you quickly pointed out, and build the United Nations all at the same time. We've got to be able to address these crises, but also keep our eye on important areas, whether it's Latin America or sub-Saharan Africa, so where just a little bit of effort by the United States can pay huge dividends. Meanwhile, we certainly have to keep our eyes on the high-profile national security priorities that, that are in the paper every day. So uh, my commitment to you is, as Deputy Secretary, I'll make sure, do my best to make sure that those areas of the world where we have very important interests are not neglected while everybody is being spun up over today's headline. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday. There will be numbers of written questions, and I know that you'll be ready to answer those promptly. Short of something uh, unusual happening, uh, I have to tell you, I. I look forward to uh, very strongly supporting your nomination. I think you've acquitted yourself exceptionally well today. It's evident that in your private meetings with members on both sides of the aisle, you've done the same there. And I really do believe that the experiences you've had in other departments uh, and the professionalism that you have as an individual um, have equipped you to be an, an exceptional deputy secretary. So we thank you for your willingness to serve, for your families willingness to allow you to do something that we know is going to be a seven-day-a-week job, at least in the beginning and probably all the way through. Uh, and with that, uh, the meeting is over. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Okay.